0: Sustainability and carbon neutrality have become one of the world's foremost priorities. As a result, companies may potentially employ sustainability agreements with their competitors, for example, to standardise packaging so it is more easily recycled, or to share information regarding suppliers that have more environmentally friendly processes. However, these agreements may fall afoul of competition and antitrust laws, which may very well cause businesses to dial back on joint initiatives that might help to address climate change. In July 2023 and October 2023 respectively, the European Commission and the UK Competition and Markets Authority have released guidelines to differentiate between sustainability agreements that are anti-competitive and those which are permissible. In this episode, we will be discussing the potential intersections between competition law and sustainability agreements. Welcome to the Oxford Undergraduate Law Podcast, where we discuss the law and its relationship with society. I'm Juliette. And I'm Rich, and we are your podcast editors. We will platform academics, practitioners, and experts from different backgrounds on this podcast.
1: Today we are joined by Bernard Duran, a partner at RBB Economics. RBB Economics is a global leader in competition economics which works alongside law firms to advise companies in the context of competition law investigations by enforcers or in the context of litigation in front of courts. He has a PhD in economics from Boston College and has over 20 years of experience in competition economics, particularly in the context of competition law investigations. He has advised companies like Nespresso, Google, Amazon, British Airways, and DuPont, among others. He was previously the Director of Economic Analysis at the UK's Competition Commission, which is now part of the UK Competition and Markets Authority in London, and a member of the Chief Economist Team at the Directorate General for Competition at the European Commission in Brussels. So thank you so much for joining us today. First off, perhaps you could start with what? Are sustainability standards or sustainability agreements that we're concerned with in this context? So why are they important and what do they look like in the market?
2: Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to, uh, to speak to you and to discuss this, the concern or at least discuss this very important topic, sustainability, standard and uh, environmental sustainability and how this interplays with competition law because there's been a lot of talks about the relationship, let's say, between sustainability sustainability goals on the one hand and the objective of competi- competition policy on the other hand, and in Europe in particular, and also the UK, since the UK is outside Europe, um, I'm going to use the term Europe as political, in the political definition. So the European Union, when I refer to Europe, and then the UK will be outside that. So both the CMA in the UK and the European Commission for the European Union develop some document to explain how they plan to adapt if anything competition policy to achieve sustainability objective or environmental sustainability objective so now your question sorry so a bit of a long introduction to come back to your question and to at least cast your question in that in that in that context what are sustainability standards? Why are they important? And let me say that first, I'm not an expert in sustainability. I'm not an environmental economist. I'm a competition economist. So your audience will have to realize that what I say is probably has more authority when it comes to competition policy than it has when it comes to environmental objectives. Now, clearly there is a an objective, a policy objective, a, a global objective to achieve cl- to achieve you know to to protect the environment and there is a, the notion of sustainable development which is essentially to limit damages to the environment and make sure resources are preserved for the future generations so that's very 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 broad now there is no clear definition of what sustainability means really because sustainability could mean many things but if we start focusing on on environmental sustainability we have a bit, it's a bit more tangible what we are Talking about so in Europe, so European Union, I clearly set out very clear objective. Okay, and one objective which is set out in the Green Deal, EU Green Deal, is that by 2050, the European Union should be carbon. Right? So they should be net zero greenhouse gas emissions. So we should be at zero, right? So that's pretty pretty clear what that objective is. So that as a standard, we get to give it to the to the Commission that they give us a very clear um, objective and a a clear metric to abide by. But that's basically to set the scene broadly.
1: Yeah, so I think we've set out why sustainability standards are important and I guess what the goals are. So what do you think then are the aims and concerns of competition law in contrast?
2: Okay, so I'm not a lawyer, but I have a good understanding of what the objective of competition law should be, at least from an economics perspective, which uh, may, there may be a different perspective, but at least if we start like this, broadly speaking, the objective of competition law is that we are working in market economies. Okay, so you, if you think about, I'm going to simplify things, but you could think of two ways of organizing an economy. You can have a market economy or a planned economy. I think the planned economy is kind of dead. And we are more in a system where the economy is organized around markets, even though there are policy intervention, which can uh, actually be, be justified. Now, the objective of competition law in, in this context is to tame the excessive use of market power. What does that mean? Is it means firm may have market power, i.e., they have the ability to increase prices above cost. Okay, and why is it not a good thing? It's not a good thing because it means that markets are not working very well. They are not resulting in an outcome where resources are located efficiently. We could actually produce more because some consumer would will be willing to pay even a, a price that is still above the cost of the product that you could produce. So in a many ways, market power is a manifestation of, of market failure. Okay, Hence, it's important that whenever possible that market power be tamed so that there is more production, more consumption at lower prices, All right? which is very good for economic progress. Now, market power in and of itself is not that always bad, and then i like to make it very clear so that your, the audience doesn't come out and say, oh, market power, it's terrible, we need to tame it, you know, to restrict it. Well, the thing is market power can be acquired by a company because they are just the best in the market, just to put it simply. Uh, if, uh, company developed a product or services that is just more popular and where customers go to, then it's almost normal that it it wins the market, or at least it's, it's got a large market share on the market. And we don't want actually to prevent that kind of behavior or conduct because the company is invested into developing a product or services that actually is the winning service or winning product which actually benefits society so we need to be a bit careful now there are and this is where competition law comes There are ways into which company firms may actually you know do things and i'll come to be a bit more specific in a minute to actually increase market power or exercise market power which is not really as we as the lawyers would call it competition on the merits they are not really exercising market power because they have offer a product that is unique or it's because of business acumen. It's more they're doing something to restrict so-called competition. Okay, And so in that sense, competition law has several instruments to limit this kind of unjustified exercise of market power. So the first, first one, which is very easy to understand, is cartel agreements. Right? Cartel agreements are essentially agreement between firms so that they restrict competition. They come together around a table, like uh, we do here today, in a room, and agree not to compete against each other, possibly even fixing prices, so that they don't undercut each other. Right. Clearly, this, the objective of this agreement is to actually raise prices and therefore increase the gap between price and cost, and this gives rise to an unduly use of exercise market power. So that's really bad for society. It's bad for the allocation of resources, it's bad for consumer. Okay, so and authorities, I mean, at least in Europe and, and the UK, have and even in the US and North America, they have instruments to fight cartels, and in uh, Europe it's called Article 101 of the treaty, which is basically setting out that some agreements are restricting competition, and cartel agreements are certainly one of them. Now, the other type of agreement. That also restrict competition. That are not obviously restricting competition, but need or require, nevertheless, some assessment. So there are other type of agreement between competitors, which may fall or which may restrict competition, but which may not be a cartel. So what's you know the gray zone is, for example, the exchange of information. Exchange of information happen between competitors because they want to establish new standard. They It's 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 actually useful to provide information about how the industry operates, and so the type of information may actually be quite important here to make sure that the the agreement does not come into a to turn into a a cartel agreement, or there may be also horizontal agreement between just a subset of competitors. You know, people may do joint ventures, they may do joint research programs. So those are also. They could restrict competition, or at least part of. And then there are also vertical agreement. So vertical agreement will exist whenever, say, a manufacturer will tell its distributor, for example, "You shall do things in this way and not in this way." And but if he tells all of its distributor a number, he imposes on its distributor a number of measures such that they restrict competition between the distributors. That's what we call restriction of intra-brand competition. Sorry to use a a jargon here but we distinguish and I won't go into further detail but just so people understand uh, vertical agreement may seem as damaging competition when actually they restrict what we call intra-brand competition so imagine a product uh, say uh, uh, a brand of mineral water that is sold by different supermarkets but the uh, the manufacturer or the producer of this water says you shall sell the, pro- the, the mineral water as this price you know and everybody has the same price you cannot set the price below or above. That limits competition between the supermarkets on this water, for this water. So that's r- limited intra-brand competition. That doesn't mean there is no competition with other brand of mineral water. Now, a, a parenthesis, because I know you're from Singapore. This kind of restriction is not illegal in Singapore, but it is in Europe. So there are this arsenal of instruments to limit what we call restricted uh, agreement, which could give rise to an increase in price and increase the gap between price and cost. Then there is another instrument, which is in the parlay of the European Union, is called Abuse of Dominant Position, which is regimented by Article 102. And it says that companies that have acquired a dominant position may not abuse that dominant position. There's nothing wrong with having a dominant position. You can acquire a dominant position, but you cannot abuse it. So you can be in a situation where you are the largest supplier in the market. Typically, the, the case law says that you dominant, and this, I said the case law, not an economist, by the way, the case law says that you're dominant whenever you have a market share above 50, okay, except for exceptional circumstances. So typically, you presume to hold a dominant position e- every time you have a market share above 50%, and in that that sense there are a number of things you cannot do because then it would be seen as an abuse of dominant position and there are ways you can abuse your dominant position is to foreclose your competitors to eliminate you know so to basically prevent your smaller rival to compete with you and that could be there mean different ways of doing this but you know one of them would be a, some sort of predatory pricing I'm setting prices super low even below my cost so that I will you know eliminate and will drive you out of the market or some sort of rebate scheme that yeah. are uh, yeah. uh, similar to that or they are, they are the other ways and then so abuse of dominant position is one way in which authorities in europe at least limit the use of market power and then another very important instrument is merger control so very briefly for transactions or so firms acquire another firm right if the turnover of these firms is sufficiently high they may notify the transaction to a competition authority so i mean if two corner shop merge typically nobody cares sorry to say but it's just you know the cost of an investigation is just too high but if two chains of corner shop that have hundreds of stores in the country then that may warrant if you want an investigation now so we distinguish very quickly three types of mergers there is the first type is called Horizontal mergers. Horizontal mergers happen when two competitors merge. So you can see here that when you have a concentrated market and two important competitors merge, they will eliminate competition between themselves. Market power will be increased and the gap between price and cost will rise, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. It's bad for consumer and, and for allocative efficiency. So that's that's pretty straightforward. Now you have also vertical mergers which is basically when a manufacturer and a distributor merge, or when a manufacturer and an input supplier merge. So that's, and there, there again, it could lead to some concern, but I won't go into this. And then there are what we call conglomerate mergers. Conglomerate mergers are essentially merger between companies that do not overlap on the market. So they don't compete head to head. They are not also supplier or buyer. Okay. They're just essentially company that have the same pool of customer, but they offer different products. So the product could be complementary or independent, but the point is that they have the same pool of customer. So those merger control exist because it's a way of limiting concentration in the market or at least limiting the potential increase in market power that will result from mergers. Now, so you can see competition authority, at least in Europe and the UK is the same, have Quite a wide range of instruments to limit ways which companies or firms may increase market power. I would say, the very last thing I would add is in Europe, we have also state aid control, which is interestingly also the remit of DG competition. I'm going to say something maybe provocative, but I don't think this is competition policy, but that's because it's different. The objective, in the sense that it's not directly about preventing the exercise of market power, it is about Preventing a distortion of competition as a result of, say, government subsidies or aid, which is, you know, I'm not saying this is there should not be intervention. There should probably be control for this for sure, but it's the objective is slightly different. I, I would say, and and the way it's been uh, administered is also uh, it's also a bit different. So there you go. So that's a very long introduction to what what the aims and concern of competition laws are. But at least this is it. So at least at least the audience hopefully has a clear understanding of where this is going.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for the really great broad overview of competition law, the aims of competition law and the kind of mechanisms that the UK and the European Union use to regulate competition. So I guess what we'll move on to now is kind of the main meat of our podcast. So I guess what exactly is this key conflict that we have between sustainability standards or sustainability agreements even in competition law. So the UK has released very recently some guidance on green agreements and when they might fall afoul of competition law. And the European Commission has also released this guidance. So uh, why exactly is there this conflict? And what's this conflict about? Okay,
2: so this is a very important question. First of all, I'm going to take a step back. Okay, I think it's, I mean, at least in many economists' mind, you know, there's this rule, one instrument, one objective, one policy objective. So, competition policy has a clear objective, which is what I just described for quite a lengthy way, what this objective is. Now, sustainability as a policy or has also its own objective, which, let's say it's the Green Deal, you know, let's be carbon neutral. That's a very clear objective. Now, I think First of all, like to say, and I think it's very important to clarify the debate, competition policy is not an instrument for sustainability objective. It, it just cannot be. It's not the first best solution, right? Now, that, that I've said that. And I think that some people would like it to be, but I don't think it, it should be. Now, first point is, it is true that there could be conflict between sustainability objective and the Objective of competition policy, and I think mean, it's important to talk about this indeed. But there are also many ways in which there are no conflict, so I don't think we should overstate as well the fact that competition policy would be seen as an obstacle to achieving some goals, so say having Europe, the European Union carbon neutral. So, I mean, just to to say, for example, and I'm gonna praise the commission here, the competition policy could actually investigate agreement between companies when those agree not to develop you know clean solution or you know not to go the extra miles to actually develop technologies that would help achieve the Green Deal. Okay. And there's a recent example that where the Commission has acted quite strongly in there. In 2021, the Commission has found that you know, five German car manufacturer, Daimler, BMW, Volkswagen in particular, they breached antitrust rule because they, they colluded, according to the commission, on technical development in the area of nitrogen oxide. Okay, Nitrogen oxide is basically this car emission, right? So it's it's an air pollutant and clearly it is something we would like to reduce because it's harmful to human health. Now, what's interesting here is that basically there were regulation, you know, and that's the high to be that the regulator comes in and says we need to limit air pollutants. So we need to limit the emission of nitrogen oxide and needs to be limited. And usually, you know, if the people don't, then they get fined, they get, you know, they got into trouble, blah blah But here, so what we're talking about. What we're talking about is that the commission found out that actually the manufacturer made sure that he would not go beyond what's mandated by the regulator so in in, in some way the fact that you know they didn't want to reduce nitrogen oxide emission more than it, they could have and agree included for that it you know clearly it's the restriction of competition because you know, one of them could have said, I'm going to do better than what you do. So my car manufacturer A said, I want to sell a car that is even cleaner than car manufacturer B. So I'm going to attract more consumers, say because they think that consumers also use this as a factor to, to make purchases. And as a result of that, they would have probably stolen market share from the right. And so there's a clear, you know, a restriction of competition here and you can see here that this work together i mean the sustainability objective and this sense and competitions are complementary so that's so that's good it's not always bad okay now there is one moment there is one setting or there are a couple settings where yes there is an issue okay and it comes to agreement as you refer in your question let's use car manufacturer as an example it's probably the best way to do it so Let's, let's imagine that indeed a car manufacturer would, you know, would have a there is a solution out there for cleaner, uh, clean a cleaner technology that reduces emissions drastically. Let's say, but let's say also that that a new technology is costly. It's not cheap. The car manufacturer one car manufacturer adopts it unilaterally. Its cost is going to be increased, and as a result, it's going to have to ro- raise its price. Okay. Now, let's imagine that actually consumers, although they love to buy clean cars, they don't value the clean car as much as the cost of that new technology, right? And that's, I think, a sensible assumption because even though, you know, you and I would think that clean cars are good. typically. You know the emission of our own car on our own health is not that much and so we're not necessarily going to put necessarily a great value to this now in that setting if there is competition between car manufacturers no one is going to adopt the new technology because it's just too costly mm. It would be shooting yourself in the foot and that's what we call the first mover disadvantage mm. if someone moves first with this new costly technology they will produce cars that are clearly better for the environment but at a price tag that is probably not appealing to consumers so they would lose many customers at the end so the incentive of car manufacturers is not to do this okay now there are two solutions to this to solve that problem because we would want to have this new clean technology to be rolled out because it's better for the planet and for for us right and i think there's very little debate about that now you could make you could have the first best is a regulatory intervention. So you raise the bar, you know, the technology is there. I mean, obviously, you know, regulation needs to be practical. You cannot, you know, set goals that are unachievable. But if it is achievable, then, you know, you can set the bar so that, you know, every car by year X will have to adopt or have, you know, emission standard like this. And this is what we see is how the regulation is operating. Although it's not necessarily on a global scale, but you could see, you know, in cities, in Europe, in some countries, they are definitely setting, you know, emission standards. Now, but let's say there is no regulation, or there is no clear regulation like this, or regulation is going to be delayed. The only way the uh, car manufacturer could actually implement that solution would say, okay, we need to get together around the table and agree that we all implement that new technology so that no one is, you know, undercutting the others. And we all commit to actually by year X have this technology rolled out and our car will be equipped with this clean technology. Now, you know, that sounds good, right? The problem is this is where competition law comes into play this agreement between competitors may be seen as a restriction of competition. And this is where, you know, one would have problem with competition law in this, in a sense. Now, let's be clear, if this agreement between the car manufacturer to develop clean technology is not a sham to actually exchange information to set prices, then in my mind, it should be fine. It should be almost exempted. However, even the Trump administration, you know, which is not exactly known for exactly for its environmental uh, goal, but had opened an investigation against car manufacturer because of their commitment to higher emission standard than those required by law. So, yes, it is. So there is somewhere in the law, in trust law, and competition law, the view that if you agree, if you come together uh, and adopt the s- same standard, you may be restricting competition. And we may talk a little bit more about this, but... In Europe, the idea was that if you do that, why this technology and why not the other, right? So, yeah, it's a notion that you're imposing a technology on all car manufacturers and and basically foreclosing other technology. And that's, I think, it's a bit of a weird debate in my mind. I'm not a lawyer, but I would think that this kind of agreement should be exempted from competition law. I think you will avoid the conflict easily and it's not obvious the restriction of the restriction of competition is not that obvious compared to a, a naked price you know collusion it's much less obvious. So but this is where the conflict arises. Now it gets even more and and I'll take another five minutes here. It gets even more interesting when in the context of mergers. So you could have a merger, imagine a merger between two competitors, right? And so if there is a merger between two competitors and if it's a concentrated market, you would expect price to increase. Particularly if there are barriers to entry, it's difficult to enter, there is no countervailing factors that would limit that that effect on competition. So there is clearly a bad, right? There is something that's going to impact consumer. Now imagine that this one of the merging firms is actually developing a new technology and it's produced a clean technology. It's developing it. And for whatever reason, it's not licensing it. It has the IP, but it's hard to license. It's it's difficult to, you know, to enforce the IP right, right? So let's assume that there's also a cost-efficient technology. So that firm is going to adopt that clean technology and will sell cleaner products. Now, one of the benefits from the merger is that one of the merging parties has this clean technology and post-merger, the other merging party is going to benefit from it. So, in other words, the technology will be rolled out on a much larger scale. There will be a higher production level that is subject to this better clean technology. Which, let's say, might, let's imagine that the obvious benefit, or at least immediate benefit, and maybe for the long term, is that this will lead to a reduction in the emission of, of, of greenhouse gases. So that's a good thing. I think this problem is actually more difficult to solve than the... Agreement that I talked about earlier because here we have clearly a problem in the sense that the market in which These companies are selling the merger will give rise to a price increase So some consumers are going to be hot. and then at the same time we're going to have a benefit to the environment because There will be a reduction in greenhouse gases that will be even higher than without the merger because now to two Two merging parties would have the benefit of this new technology, which for whatever reason cannot be licensed uh, or adopted otherwise. Now, how do you go about this? This one I think is tricky because you have clearly a restriction of competition in the market where the product is being sold, so consumers in the market are harmed, but benefit is for. Consumer in that market will get cleaner air, but also all the non-consumer, all the people outside that market, benefit from it. So, when it comes to technology that is widespread, it's quite easy. I mean, if you think about you know the if you think about fuel, or people who drive, there are a lot of people who are driving. So almost you could almost equate drivers and and population. Well, not in all countries, appreciate it, but but it at least you're not getting far. But you can imagine a situation where the market might be quite. Quite limited, and yet the emission, the the gas, the benefit in gas emission is quite universal, almost. So there, this this is where there's been a lot of discussion how we how we deal with it, how we balance this. I mean, so that discussion, the merger example I'm using, I think tells more the story than I think the agreement, because I think the agreement that I described, I I have a harder time seeing the problem that I mean people make a, see a problem, I see it less. But anyway, the but. What is crystallized, and I think that's the key, is that how do you balance on the one hand the harm that someone, you know, the harm to competition, which would be suffered by some consumer, a limited set of consumer, and the benefit to a wider group?
1: All right. So we talked about, I guess, how we kind of balance and assess the kind of harm that's caused to consumers, for example, through higher prices, as well as the benefits that they get through, for example, cleaner. So the UK and the European Commission have both come out with guidance, which also touches briefly on how to assess these kinds of like, metrics and how to balance them, etc. So what do you think are the key differences between the regulation of these sustainability agreements or sustainability standards in Europe, or as you mentioned, the mergers and acquisitions problems versus the regulation of these actions in the UK?
2: Okay, yeah, so this is a, a pretty important question. So when indeed there seems to be a conflict between competition law and sustainability objective, this is largely the case in so, agreement between competitors, what we just discussed earlier, or in the context of mergers, where you, the agreement between competitors can give rise to a price increase, or a merger can give rise to a price increase, which is gonna harm consumer on the market, and then at the same time you can have a benefit from say the acquisition of a of a better standard, which will result in reduction of greenhouse gases emission. Now, so that problem has been identified and how competition agencies are going to handle it. And this is where it's important to realize that to, to come back to what I said earlier is that you know the objective of competition policy is not a reduction of emission of gases. That's just not okay. So people need to realize this. At the same time, we don't want necessarily competition law, or, or the inter- intervention by competition agencies to limit the progress towards, you know, a carbon neutral economy. Now, authorities. So therefore, have published, as you said, guidance. For a company and this is a really good thing by the way let me just open a parenthesis competition authority are doing a great job in trying to explain how they will look at agreement and this is not just about sustainability agreements about everything so the the european commission as well as the cma are definitely doing a great job in explaining to lawyers and their advisors how you know they're going to assess agreement now the commission has published a new guidelines in this year on a horizontal agreement and in that guidelines there is a new chapter on sustainability agreement and the CMA has also last month published a green agreement guidance which basically tackle the same issues as what the European Commission is Okay, Now these documents are very interesting and I mean, so I know well the uh, European Commission agreement. I knew a little less well the CMA, and th- I mean there are differences, but by and large they're very similar. Uh, the UK still use uh, very similar provision uh, than uh, the European Commission when it comes to uh, the uh, assessment of agreement. Now, so what? What one is the issues that this agreement tackles is what we call standard, standardized agreement or standard agreement. So when company, has, as I said, you know, decide to uh, set up a st- common agreement. And this seems to be raising a concern. And like I said, for me, I'm not sure what the concern is, but anyway, they tell us there is a concern and then they tell us how the benefit can be assessed. So I don't want to enter into super technical discussion here. For your audience, but whenever an agreement is seen as restricting competition, it can be exempted if it meets a number of conditions. So that, which means essentially, to put it simply, that the benefits outweigh the harm. Okay, so there is arm to competition, which is usually assumed, and then you know, company if they show there is a benefit that accrues to the consumer, then there will be a balancing exercise between the harm and the benefit and if the benefit outweigh the harm, then the agreement is exempted, i.e. it is legal. Now, when it comes to standardized agreement towards environmental sustainability, the benefits are pretty clear. Benefit is typically when it comes to environmental benefit, it I mean the obvious one is reduction of greenhouse gases. Okay? That's that would be one of the, the benefits. Now the authorities look need to translate this into benefit for consumer okay so in a agreement can be exempted if an agreement generates benefits and a fair share of this benefit goes to consumer and this is where it gets tricky and yet this is where competition are not going out of their way to help and and i agree with them in many ways what the authority is telling us is that the benefit must accrue to consumers that have been harmed. So that's the debate between what we call in-market and out-of-market efficiency gains. Okay? So in other words, and to put it simply, you pay more because you're a consumer of the product that is the object of the agreement and for whatever reason the price is increased. To me, again, I repeat, this is not obvious why there would be a price increase because we have a standardized agreement which um, it leads um, it leads to less competition, but anyway, come from spark that. But let's imagine that there's a harm, and then the benefit must be that you you know you you breathe cleaner air, right? And what we're gonna do is the commission the commission and the CMA is telling us, well, it's got to be the cleaner air that these consumers are breathing. So if you want the benefit. Per users is very small, given that you take only the portion of the benefit that is accrued to consumer that have been harmed by the agreement. Then you may end up in a situation where something that is really good for society is not going to be deemed lawful, because essentially the harm to this small group of consumer is too high. So if they say 100 consumer that have been harmed, right, and they pay a higher price, and then you know, 10 million people breathe better air. So you would think, okay. You know, I didn't do the math, but we should go for it, right? Because 10 million people breathing better air is probably better for society, better for their health. There could be a lot of benefit. And, you know, too bad uh, 100 people pay more. Although I'll come to to that in a minute. And then you would say, okay, well, we should let this go through, right? And then, because the authorities are going to say, no, hang on. We're going to look at only the benefit of air quality for these 100 consumers. And that's, you know, clearly that's going to raise the bar, that's the hurdle, that's very difficult to overcome, right? For the group. So now this is where this is where competition authority have been put in in a difficult spot. Because the reason they do what they do is because if you start opening the gate towards out of market efficiencies, then you need to have limiting principles, limiting factors, because anything can come. You know, why not employment benefit? Uh, the standard of the authority might start changing towards, you know, the effect on competition to public interest. And then the margin of discretion is huge, it's more difficult to administer, and it's not even obvious that, you know, who is going to resolve conflicting objective. And like I said, it goes against the principle of one instrument, an objective. So I see where the authority come from and and, and why they're trying to have this limited principle. Okay. But at the same time, you do wonder why is it that we cannot let an agreement go through it benefit millions? And this is where you know, I think there are discussion here. Some people will say, well, so long as the regulator has not intervened, we hope they will intervene because they should, you know, they should be responsible for the reduction of of greenhouse gases um, emissions. And it's not the job of competition authority to do that. And they should set the standards so that it's clear that competition authority won't have to, to, to deal with this. So, but until then, maybe competition authority should, do more and should exempt this disagreement, even though you know a few people might be harmed. And, and, and that's what the the Commission authority don't want to go there. That's not they don't want. I mean a few try to, but by and large the European Commission, the CMA have been pretty clear that they, they, they don't want to do this. Now, so you could see that the balancing can be done, you know, and then we can talk a little bit about that. But it would be limited to those who to look at individuals who've been harmed by the agreement or the mergers and whether they've you know the benefit from the merger of the agreement will outweigh the harm so you, you and you know economists can do that because we you know we're great at putting a a, a a number or at least we're putting a value to things right so there are there are ways you can you can stop you know price increase you can try to 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 gauge it or to estimate it. And then the benefit from a reduction in greenhouse gases emission can also be, uh, you can put a a pound value, a euro value, a dollar value to this as well.
1: Yeah, so actually, as an economist, how do you put a numerical value on, for example, someone's preference for cleaner air? What kind of, for example, methodologies do you use? Is it like survey-based or how do you do that?
2: So this is a really good question and so for some of those I know the answer for some I know less the answer but first of all there's typically not always a market price for this you know what's the value of what's the value to you or me or you a consumer of reduction in emission of greenhouse gases I mean this that's there's, there's no market for this mm. right so so then it, it, comes, it comes with the notion of we need to find the shadow price. It's called a shadow price because there is no, 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 mar- no market for this. And so the way it works is the shadow price is basically what is the social value or the social cost of this reduction in greenhouse gases emissions. So now, good news is you know, there are agencies who are working on this and trying to tell us what the shadow price is. My colleague was previously at the AGCM, which is the, compi- the Dutch Competition Authority, has worked on, on this, and the, the Dutch Authority is very much a big proponent of putting sustainability on the agenda. And they, for example, in the Netherlands, been, it's been estimated that the price of CO2 is 57 euros per kiloton. So how do you, how do, you do this? There are different ways of doing this. There is the notion of, you know, we can put values to anything, you know, and I'm taking the example from Tian from again, is that if you want to know, for example, the value of a cleaner hair, when you live in, in cities, you can look at the difference in prices of housing. Those are close to the highway and then close to a, a park, right? I mean, in addition to uh, many other uh, characteristics that they'll tell you, I mean, you controlling for... Everything else that matters in, in affecting the price of a house, you could actually you know consider that some of it may be explained by the fact that people are paying a higher price to live close to a you know green pasture compared to live <laughs> next to a highway, for example. You can you can and there may be some aesthetic to this as well. So the way the one way to do this is to look at so what's the benefit of a reduction in in air pollutants? Then you can so basically try to figure out what are the different components. So obviously one is health. So, you know, looking at, you know, we know nitrogen oxide is bad for our health. I don't know. I mean, I'm not an expert, but I'm told it's bad. And there are studies who actually say, you know, reduction in X amount emission will lead to, you know, that kind of health benefit. And in some countries, we are starting to quantify health benefit. It is also good for... You know the climate. There may be a connection between climate change and, uh, and this housing. You know, air pollutants are very bad for housing. You know, it deteriorates wear and tears. It's worse. So there is. You can add this up, mm. for example, and in some ways you you go and do surveys in this. You can go surveys. So as economists, what we we care is the willingness to pay of people, right? Mm. So if there's no market, the problem is there's is no revealed preference. i.e. people are not paying because there is no trade, right? So the benefit of a reduction in air pollutants is not traded. So how do you assess the willingness to pay for uh, by people? But survey is obviously a way to go. It's obviously has it's a limitation, huh? It's it's people may overstate massively their willingness to pay for, for things. But you know you can do survey, conjoint analysis. Conjoint analysis is used in marketing. It's m- the way it works, conjoint analysis, is to, you know, you put pair, um, you know, you ask people to choose between two options, typically. And you change, you know, there's a price, and then you describe the product, and the product have different features. And then you change that continually to get an understanding mm-hmm. of what how people, what attributes of a product or service people attribute to. You can do the same thing for So you could do that. The Commission alludes to this in its guidelines. I'm now diverging to what the Commission is saying in its guide. The Commission is telling us that there are three types of benefits that you could consider when you do this weighting, this balancing exercise. There's the use value that people just would like to buy, you know, better product. So if you go to the supermarket and you buy organic food, or Food that has been made through sustainable waste, they are tend to be more expensive, and you know you pay for it. Okay, fine, that's easy. You know that's what we buy. That's that's it. But the, the problem comes when there is this called the non-use value. That I would be willing to pay a higher price for detergent that cleans less <laughs> well, but it creates no waste to water, right? Or it's not going to pollute water, right? And then there is the collective benefit. I mean you know, reduction in air pollutants obviously benefits everybody and multiple right? health, human health, you know, climate change, ecosystems, housings. So that's that's hard. That's hard to do. And I think that what's going to happen is the commission will probably and maybe the CMA as well will, will people will come to the commission or to the CMA to examine this agreement will have to Essentially, higher economists, yeah. and the focus will be largely on developing surveys to actually show that people value, you know, a cleaner solution or something that is sustainable, environmentally friendly solution, and how much, you know, pounds they put to that. I think that that's and but you could do surveys that are you know that are trying to prevent people from overstating. I mean, you will never prevent them from completely overstating, but you know, at least limit the overstating. You know, so that you know, this, this is where we're going. But I think, I mean, uh, the authorities also accepting, and the Commission as well as uh, the CMA accepting that they need to learn how mm. to do this. So they are asking, of, you know, firms to come forward, to discuss their plans, and to see how they, they can work together. So I think the, the authorities are quite an open point to this, mm. they won't wield the stick, they will probably want to listen, I mean, so long as these agreements are genuine, mm. and they are not a way to actually you know collude or exchange information that will lead to, I think that's that. So, I think more is to be seen in the next few years, but it's clear that at least the authorities are opening the door to say, okay, we'll do our best to exempt those agreements, but we're not going to ban the rules.
1: I just wanted to pick up on what you said about, I guess, almost like the greenwashing of a collusion agreement, right? So actually, how do you tell between an agreement that's basically just a collusion agreement with A load of environmental jargon thrown on top of it, and in contrast, an actual sustainable agreement. Are there economic measures that you use to assess this?
2: That's an extremely good question. I'm not. I'm not aware of cases that, Mm -hmm. where that has been an issue. But it's either sham or essentially, you know, greenwashing, and then nothing really. There's nothing tangible behind it, or. I, thi- I think I mean I think this is it boils down to evidence.
0: Yeah.
2: It boils down to, you know, demonstrating the benefit of the agreement. You know, if it's a uh, telling, you know, agreeing to use less plastic, for example, when you know you can see this as a, a as a pretty clear case in distribution, for example, product and in consumer goods, right? You know, with red- red- reducing the use of plastic, I think. I mean, in Europe, we have a directive now, and that's, that's probably a good thing. But you know, the industry may want to go beyond, and yeah. maybe we want them to go beyond some of these mandated. Uh, uh, and so we would come to you know explaining to the authority, it's you know it's it we are going to use less plastic and what it is. My sense is that greenwashing is often more about company that that says I'm greener than I really are, yes. and that's more consumer protection issues, mm. you know, it's false advertising <laughs> <laughs> in many ways, and I think that should be picked up, clearly, but I mean, do they need to, you agree to use less plastic, not clear to mm-hmm. me, I mean, I don't think there is first mover disadvantage here, so I'm not sure there is a for agreement. so then, then it comes to the question of indispensability, whether you, whether you need to discuss, I mean, and I think it only comes to, standard. It when when there is this first mover disadvantage that we discussed earlier, this is really when the issue comes. Otherwise company probably don't need to discuss compete on you know being greener. That's good.
1: Just one last question would be I guess as an economist you work a lot with lawyers across different jurisdictions. So how do you think lawyers and economists can kind of work together and coordinate better in the future?
2: Oh that's a really general question. I think so clearly competition law needs to work in a, a legal framework, I mean that's, that's clear, so lawyers are indispensable, they'll be very happy to hear this, they're indi- indispensable to the good order and working of competition law. Now I think in the terms competition law, there is one term that's called competition, which is mostly economics, although maybe some people would deserve that, but I think economists have a lot to say about competition. And without we making things too complicated, the companies sometimes are unnecessary. I mean, at least they can add insight into how uh, market operates, which help regulators and lawyers understand whether an agreement, a merger, or a pre- practice is actually detrimental to competition mm-hmm. or stifle competition. And so the way it works best is when, you know, the way it works best is when the economists are not involved for sure because this is easy, this is simple. And we all want clear and simple rules, that's for sure. But competition some is not a simple matter. It's not, you know, there's a red light, you stop, there's a green light, you can go. It's sometimes more complicated, it's often more complicated than that. And in, in assessment needs to be, uh, to be done thoroughly, and economists, you know, must work hand. Hand in hand with it. with lawyers, often to I mean, in, in in cases where things are a little complex, to to provide so, some insight, and they do that, and you could see that guidelines from authorities are often inspired by economics. There's a lot of economics in these in these guidelines, and and I think they are written in a way that are clear to non-economists, and I think this is a job of non of economists to try to not to try mm-hmm. that to is the job of economists to be understood by by non-economists to add their insight in a way that is understandable by everyone, and I think that's that's how lawyers and economists work and in hand together. And I think in the context of a sustainability agreement. I think the insight of economies is particularly important as well.
1: Well, I think that's all the questions I have for you today. But thank you so much for agreeing to speak to us and for sharing your insights with our audience. It's like a sort of like niche intersection and I think that's something that's really interesting and kind of new and f- refreshing to our audience. So thank you.
2: Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to discuss this very important topic today. And I think Like I said, I think there will be more discussion and your audience should pay attention to uh, what authorities are doing in that space. Because we are writing in many ways history here, where authorities are looking uh, in ways into uh, promoting sustainability agreement. Mm. And it will be interesting to see how they're going to act when they actually face actual cases. So thank you.